0: so apparently there are people who don't like this song yeah i don't get it this is one of those songs that everybody agrees to like equally those who don't are nazis John Fogarty's Centerfield was a number one hit in 1985. I was two years old. Something like that. Fogarty said in an interview with the New York Times in 2010 that he was inspired to write the song after hearing stories about Mickey Mantle and Joe DiMaggio. So there's your little factoid that you can use to impress people or pick up girls. Not sure it's going to work out, but you never, never know. In case you didn't know, this is the Ingle Angle, and I am Fort Worth Star Telegram columnist Mac Ingle, here to entertain you on your way to work, on the way from work, or on your way to avoid spending time with your wife and kids, spouse and kids, however we say it these days. Not sure you know it, but baseball season's here, which means it's spring, and I hate spring. I used to love spring. For all of the obvious reasons, weather, school's close to being out as an adult, and then specifically as a homeowner, I hate spring. I hate it. Hate spring. Because it means this. And then it means this. You probably recognize those sounds. Those are the soundtrack of a spring and outside, lawnmower, weed eaters, blowers, noise constantly. As a springtime homeowner, it means work. A lot of it. It means yard mowing, yard edging, weeding, planting, all of this DIY crap that Home Depot tells you how much fun it is to get your hands dirty, to make your house look like it belongs on the next episode of Amazing Houses, where the happy couple doesn't fight and rebuilds their entire home over a weekend for just under $48. Well, fuck you, Home Depot. Yard work is not fun. It's never been fun. People don't pay $2,000 to fly to do yard work. They pay $2,000 to go to Disney World or get drunk in New Orleans to have fun. It was the late Texas Governor Ann Richards who said, quote, I don't want, My tombstone to read, She kept a really clean house. End quote. It's 2022, and we should all celebrate the fact that women for forever got the shaft as they were expected to enjoy and celebrate keeping a clean kitchen, cleaning the bathroom, scrubbing a toilet. That stuff is tedious, it's mundane, and it's just another cruel necessity on our to do list. That is not specific to one gender. So that means it goes the same for yard work. I speak for everybody, but men specifically, who sit there and say, I do not want on my tombstone to read, his yard look great. If you don't like the way my yard looks, you do it. And then you call me and tell me how much fun it is. I'm not sure uh, how my guest for this episode of the Ingle Angle feels about yard work. He's made enough money, I doubt seriously he's doing a lot of yard work himself. For more than 20 years, he was one of the best pitchers in Major League Baseball. Along with Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, this three formed one of the best starting pitching staffs in the history of Major League Baseball with the Atlanta Braves. He was an All-Star eight times, he won a World Series, he won a Cy Young, he joined the Baseball Hall of Fame in 2015. And today he is the best analyst going in baseball. He is part of MLB's coverage on Fox Telecast, and you can always learn something when you listen to him talk. He is also a staunch advocate for youth sports, which, to no one's surprise, specifically focusing on baseball. He is the one, the only, and I mean the great, John Smoltz. John, thank you very much for taking the time to call me here. I really do appreciate it. How are you?
1: I'm doing great thanks.
0: Well, I uh, I promise not to keep you forever, but I do have a handful of things to ask you and I know with you coming to town and as a good golfer, I always love asking guys who've been pro athletes and then go over to play golf in celebrity amateur events, things like that. So what's more intimidating for you, John facing the New York Yankees lineup at Yankee Stadium? in the postseason in front of, like, 55,000 fans or hitting a tee shot in an Amateur Pro-Am golf event in front of, say, 250 fans?
1: So I don't mind the fans in the golf course at all. Matter of fact, I think it's awesome, but it's still more intimidating to hit that first tee shot because it's not routinely comfortable as it would be facing a lineup in Yankee Stadium or you know, the greatest offensive lineup, whatever that is or was. So, to me, I'd like to get to a point and play enough rounds to where that first tee is no big deal. And, you know, you could kind of do it like you do um, when you're playing with your buddies. And too many times when you're
0: playing with your buddies, you know you got a second tee ball to get your day started. It doesn't work in this one. Uh, You know, John, I I don't. I doubt you remember, but you and I spoke uh, a couple years ago when you were working with, I believe it was Dr. James Andrews, and you were trying to raise awareness about uh, the rise in injuries amongst youth sports athletes, and specifically baseball youth sports baseball players. John, I think that was probably four or five years ago. In in your mind, has that issue gotten any better, or are we still in the same place where you're seeing 16-year-old kids? with injuries that usually were previously reserved for 36-year-old men.
1: Yeah, it's not even close to getting better. Uh, I would argue it's getting worse without looking at the data. Um, my simple philosophy is that the information in the business of youth baseball is running out in front of all the, the statistical data that would cause you to think differently if you were, A, a parent, or be a coach, and nothing's changing that. I mean, Dr. Andrews has tried his best. Uh, think about it. I mean, he's doing the most. He was doing the most Tommy John surgeries of anybody, or has done the most, and he's trying to figure out a way to stop them. And there is a way to lessen it, maybe never eradicate it. But I'm just telling you, I could stand up and do a free clinic in every state. And talk about the experience that I have and the experience of what it would take, and parents would walk out of there going, "He does not know what he's talking about," because the information and the um, uh, not advertising, but with the word, the 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 pr- everything that's being spit out there that a parent is consuming in is this is what you got to do: go to this factory, do this, train like this. There's so much in there's so much information and technology that we're not paying attention to the injury rate. We're just assuming they'll be fine once they go through the injury. It's almost as if we just feel like as a as a as a sport, I'm not saying universally, but that at some point someone's gonna go hurt, we'll deal with it, we'll get the next guy. And that is such a sad that is such a sad statement for me to hear or be believe or watch because I love the game and the, and the pitchers that are in it have an opportunity to do – my dream is that they have an opportunity to do what I did and pitch for 21 years. And you know that's not going to happen.
0: So, John, when someone says to you, select baseball – when you were in your career, especially early in your career, select baseball really wasn't a thing. Well, now it's very much a part of American sports culture. So when someone says, John, select baseball, what do you think?
1: I cringe. I cringe if it's not done in the right way, because select baseball in itself might be okay for a, you know, a slew of families, but I'll bet you that some of those families and kids are playing on multiple select baseball teams. So – We're asking kids at a young age to choose a sport and that sport only. It is so wrong. And yet nobody's – look, I took time in my Hall of Fame speech to address this. That's how passionate I am about it. And depending on what state you live in, you're at higher risk. If you're in Texas, Florida, California, you know, Georgia, some of the states where you can play year-round, you're rolling the dice. And parents think that's the way because the institutions are telling them that's the way more is better. Refine the mechanics, you know, train like an animal. And this is your ticket to a, um, you know, a uh, scholarship in college and your ticket to the big leagues. And what people don't understand is the strong and the elite and the freakish athlete are going to survive any system. They're going to rise to the top. It doesn't matter what you ask them to do. They're just better. But what's happening to the middle class of those athletes or the ones that would legitimately have a nice chance to play college baseball for four years or even a chance to play professional baseball? We are eliminating that by running that risk-reward system and asking these youngsters to pitch and throw earlier than they should, more than they should, and pick one sport and zap them of the fun and the pressure and, and stress that is uh, coming alongside of this is enormous. And yet we keep hitting repeat because we just think it's going to, you know, this is the way. And so um, I did a camp for 13 straight years in season while playing for the Atlanta Braves. I was there every day, but the day I started a game. And our motto was not only teach the kids fundamentals, six to 16 years old, teach them fundamentals, teach them, character integrity you know how to play the game of course and out of 250 to 300 kids on average every year i would go to three or four parents and say your young man has a gift so think about that percent percentage okay the variety of of kids and parents that think they're all going to have that that arm and i would say don't let somebody abuse this it's a gift you know, you're not just going to wrap it up and never open it up until you get to college or high school. Of course not, but don't let somebody abuse this. What good is it to dominate at 6, 7, and 8, and 9 years old? Right? What good is it? And I've always said no one really addressed this. And I get it's the elite of the elite. But the Little League World Series, why are they not pouring out future MLB stars? Especially pitchers. That's the best of the best. And yet, it, there's a reason. And what is Andrews, the reason? Well, Dr. Andrews, in his study, the Cliff Notes, more, when he was doing his study, more kids than ever in the history of sports are playing sports by the age of 13. And more kids than ever are dropping out by the age of 13. And two-thirds of those reasons were parents and coaches a common denominator there and the adult and and i'm not saying the adult is not having great intentions and aren't doing the best they think they can but the business of baseball and the money-making youth business is so big that that data is not going to come into play in my opinion I am part of something, uh, that's where I just came from, in Lansing, Michigan. We're embarking on a new um, style of baseball. Um, I'm fortunate enough that the guy, uh, Jeff Lazarus, who is uh, the pioneer behind this, is naming the stadium after me in my hometown in Lansing, Michigan. And we're, you know, close to raising enough funds to build it. And imagine this concept, okay? So you're from the age group that where, if I said, do you know what strikeout baseball is? Strikeout baseball baseball basically is a game that, that you play against your buddy a, a brick wall strike zone it's you and him and we would put cones out to determine single oh,
0: double yeah. okay? okay so it's like yep. it's a version
1: of you know pickup basketball whatever you play with two or three or four kids it, it, it ironically when I was a kid we played uh, the shift baseball before the shift ever came into play because we didn't have enough kids so we play left field out or right field out well and another Anyways, I, I say that because strikeout baseball is going to be the size of an infield. And the concept is we're going to have it in the inner city, five blocks from the Capitol. We're going to try to create an opportunity to get kids who have never played baseball or couldn't sign up or couldn't afford to get them to start playing pickup baseball again. I mean, to play baseball without the stress of an umpire or a coach or a parent, these kids are going to show up to this park. And I think once they learn how to play it, they're going to love it. So rubber baseball, the weight of a baseball. My point is, you don't drive by park fields or anywhere to see kids play and pick up baseball. It just doesn't happen. Every single throw a younger, young player makes is a competitive throw. High stress, high competition. We've lost the value of being able to play the game that everybody loves without every single throw or pitch or swing having the highest stress level competition being attached to it.
0: Well, you led me into a question I wanted to ask, which is talking about quantifying every swing, every single step that a kid makes now. And 20 years ago, I think 20 years ago, pitch count was just starting to work work its way into sort of I guess even being uh, on stadium scoreboards now, it's everywhere. Ostensibly, it's done, John, to sort of monitor the workload and all that. But do you think pitch count emphasis has really worked in deterring arm injuries?
1: Not even close. And let me just give you the backdrop of what pitch count was introduced for. It wasn't introduced for a workload. It was introduced to try to show a pitcher how you could be more economical with your pitches to get through the game with less pitches. So pitch counts are a myth because they don't apply universally to everybody and their body. They just came up with a random number and they used it as a gauge that they don't have to worry about being second guessed or the overkill of, oh my gosh, you left the guy in for 120 pitches. We have gotten so smart, so big, so, so uh, much technology, but why are we regressing in every aspect of that? Well, I'll tell you why, because that's the way they want the game to be run. They want more pitchers, Max effort, harder to hit, and they use the pitch count as a gauge and a barometer to basically give them a fall point to say, you know, this is what we're doing, and we've lost. It's, it's kind of a – I don't want to say a shell game, but it doesn't really matter because that number being so arbitrary is now a totally different standard for a guy who maxes out and is emptying the tank every single time he comes out to the mound. So now that number, <laughs> you could make an argument, um, is not relative, and that's why that number keeps going down. And the by the byproduct of what we're doing, and I don't blame the you know the players per se. They're trying to they're trying to survive in the reward system they're given. It's it's the way now that they figured out that there's factories of arms coming left, right, left, right, and center, and they can keep doing this until there isn't. And so pitch count is a laughable thing for me because you don't take into consideration stress. It's a, it's a, it's a total guess number. Now pitch counts for young kids probably has more at probably has more evidence of being successful. There's typically 15 pitches per inning is what you hear. And that's a good gauge for a young kid. But when a big leaguer trains for a particular act and he's training only one way with only one way to go, Then once he's done maxing out, he's done. And then he just hits repeat cycle in five days. So I would argue, and I would say that if I had to come up with, you know, everyone wants an analytical term or an analytical um, statistic to put behind everything to justify, which you can't, is, you know, if a guy guy, uh, pitches through the first three innings and doesn't give up a run but leaves eight guys on the base, that's stressful. That's stress innings. And whatever that number is he was going to pitch that day, you can might as well just lower it by 15 to 30. And the reason I say that, having done it, is because when you're getting in and out of jams, you literally are stressing the body at a higher level because you know that there are scenarios that are stressful. There's runners on. You don't want to give up runs. As opposed to, I will promise you this, If you took away the execute the uh, the result of an action like the result of an action, whether it's a swing or a throw, and you tell a guy all you got to do is throw fastballs right down the middle, you could throw 180 of them if you're not a mechanical, you know, if you're not bad mechanics. But when you're trying to get guys out and spin baseballs as hard as you do and make perfect pitches and all those things that come into the fray, that's why it's more difficult to navigate a game when you're emptying the tank. But if results didn't matter, I guarantee you these guys could throw beefy. They could throw it. They could throw 150 pitches with no care in the world about the results and not have the stress put on them. You know, you, you hear what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, does it make sense? Yep. Same thing with a hitter. If a hitter knew in today's game he never had to get a hit, there was no reward system for getting hit, but making contact was more of the priority. He can do it. But because of the velocity and the game's played the way it is and the shifts, guys are constantly trying to lift the ball in the air. All of this adds to the style of baseball that we're watching. And so, as an announcer, I have to adapt to the philosophy that's played, and that's what I'm doing. But when I hear somebody say, oh, my gosh, he's got 85 pitches, we act as if (laughs) these guys are falling apart, to your earlier question, because there's so many injuries. That we're doing actually more harm, in my opinion, by, I don't like the word baby them, but by doing all these rest studies and this study and that study and condensing this and going giving them extra rest, we're actually not, remember when pitch counts and analytics came into the game, this was supposed to be better for injuries. (laughs) Notice nobody talks about that. It's gotten worse. Why has it gotten worse? Well, they don't have to address it, whoever they is, because there's too many arms to fill the gap on those players and teams that get hurt.
0: So, John, in your familiarity with parents who are raising their children, and I'm not talking about just baseball, because I'm sure you have friends who have children whose kids play volleyball or soccer or football, whatever else. How much of it do you find that a parent agrees with you? almost line by line, with what you're preaching and what you're saying, but they feel powerless to do anything about it. So they're stuck paying $2,500, $3,000, $5,000 to remain in a system that they themselves really don't agree with.
1: it's a great point, And it's probably a lot more people than you think. And yes, I hear that a lot. They kind of get sucked into the funnel system of which they feel like they have no choice because little Johnny or little Debbie is getting ahead of the system. And Here's what I tell parents all the time. I just gave a gate, a big speech about this. You know, it was a fundraiser for this strikeout baseball. And that was one of the questions that was asked. And I said, I feel for the parents today. The pressure's got to be off the charts. They're doing what they feel is best for their child. But at the end of the day, if a parent really went back and added up from age six to the time they're going to college, I bet you they paid for two college scholarships. Uh. I bet you they paid for two college scholarships, the ones that can afford it. And the reason this game has, you know, maybe a decline in attendance, a decline in, in, in people playing it because of that reason it's so expensive. And the opportunities used to be if you were in a cornfield in Iowa and you could throw a ball, they'll find you, right? Right. Now, if you're not tweeting, if you're not getting out of front, now you get a tweet, or because I'm not on social media, so I don't know all these things, but you hear a kid at the age seven throw 78 miles an hour. You don't know if he threw it out of the stadium. <laughs> you don't know if he can control anything, but all of a sudden the radar goes up for every single coach that wants to know who this kid is and how did he throw 78 miles an hour and let's get him on our team. So parents are basically up against the wall in a system that I think boldly it takes guts for a certain league, a certain coach, to stick to standards that he knows is is best, and it might cost, cost him some wins. So what? You're not winning the Elite Eight or the, you know, national championship at nine. I would like to see the organization that gets promoted for the kids that have stayed the healthiest, that know how to play the game with integrity and character, and, you know, it's hard to find because they get sucked into that very question that you asked, and I tell kids, I tell people all the time, it's like, <laughs> I'm glad I grew up in Michigan. I played baseball when it was baseball season, mm. as short as it was. I played basketball, and then I played football. And we're missing the two athlete that is robbing them. I'm fearful that high school sports are going to be gone
0: in the near future in certain sports. Why?
1: Because the elite and youth and, and – and things are starting to take over certain sports like baseball is becoming travel baseball so bicycle high school baseball is kind of losing its flavor when you got your baseball team having to share your high school athletes with a youth base with a travel team that's going on at the same time and it, it, it saddens me the only sport that is not in jeopardy of losing its sport in high school is football yep because Everybody knows at least the sanity of most people is you can't play year-round football. Uh, so it is no work.
0: I'm going to ask you a couple more things to let you go. You pitched with Greg Maddox. Greg made a living in a Hall of Fame career just on location. I, I don't think yep. he, every now and then you might see him hit 94-ish, maybe. Yep. But, boy, he could he locate broke, it.
1: He broke, in, he broke into the league throwing a 94-mile-an-hour fastball and an over-the-hand, over-the-top curveball, and he was getting lit up. And why well, I said, lit up. He was getting beat up.
0: Do you think so he would ever hard. make it today? That guy would ever make it today?
1: See, my argument's one hundred percent yes, and what? I know we're caught up in the velocity in carnival baseball, but here's why I know <laughs> he would make it, okay? He is the he is the greatest mechanical pitcher I've ever seen. And when you have a one plane swing and you really have no deviation from adjusting from one swing to the next, he's going to throw the ball to your weak spot one hundred percent of the time better than anybody else. So I don't care if it was 85 miles an hour that he topped out at. The the reality of today's game is adjusting like the hitters are doing what the teams want them to do based on the defense and velocity that exists, right? So the quickest way to put a point on the board is a home run. A walk and a strikeout are the next two things that happen. But is it would he give up more runs? Yeah. But he would also get more strikeouts. And he wasn't considered, you know, a 12 strikeout guy per game but yet he, he got 3,000 and some strikeouts so the flaw in the in the answer that most people give is oh he'd get crushed right and I just disagree I disagree because of the principles I just laid out when I've watched hundreds of baseball games and these guys are talented ten times more than we are there are staffs that are ten times better than us But the reason the argument... Wait, do
0: you really mean that? Do you really mean that, John? Your staff in Atlanta, you really think there are staffs out there today, D.C., Cincinnati, Texas, Houston, New York, pick the team that are ten times more talented than you guys?
1: What I I mean is their stuff would make us look like we were nothing. Okay. But the difference is they're never going to pitch together that long, and they're never going to be able to do it because of all the things we just talked about. So... Their staff that today that have been put together in the last four years, <laughs> if it was a pickup baseball game and it just was about the wow factor, we're, you know, we're going to take second fiddle. And, and that's okay. We pitched in a different era where we didn't have to max out. So it's apples and oranges. But when I see a Jacob DeGrom, there's not one of us that could handle or do what Jacob DeGrom does. Nobody to watch I want to watch him more I want to watch him pitch more I I hate it that he gets hurt that he's not pitching as much but I don't say I say it on I mean my teammates would agree I mean Tommy and Greg would agree on some factors of like we we didn't wow people we wow people with our results I was a little bit more of the power pitcher obviously than those two guys but um, no doubt that uh today's guys that throw oh my goodness
0: john it, I, regarding uh, I, I don't want to keep you forever so i wanted to ask you this question because i want to see if you because when you preach about youth sports i agree with you almost to the letter and when i've talked to people in the nfl mlb nba nhl about youth sports development they all tell me the same thing and i want to see if you agree or not which is you really don't have any idea if your kid has a shot at playing at the next level, I'm talking college or beyond that until they're finished pretty much with puberty. And until then just play games, have fun, make sure they get better conditioning, whatever. But until, until they're done with puberty, you really don't know. Do you agree with that?
1: Totally agree. And it's at different stages, right? Not yeah. everybody hits that at the same stage. Look, I think most people think that they pick the sport, the sport picks you. You may not be the size you wanted to be if you always desired to be a hockey player, and let's say you grow to be six ten. Good luck with that. <laughs> or, or you know, you end up being six five, two hundred and ninety pounds. Good luck trying to be a goalie. Good luck trying to be a. You're going to be a, more than likely a football player. Here's the philosophy I have that I wish somebody would. I wish there was a grant that we could do this because I don't think I'd be far off. I don't have any scientific evidence behind this. It's just my feel. You give me the top. 10-year-olds in every sport. Give me three of them. Just pick them out, random. It could be in a small city or a big city. Just pick them out. And pay that family whatever it takes to not play the sport for two years. We've identified them they're the top three or they're in the top 5%, okay? So they don't play their current sport or any sport for two years. My argument is when they turn 12 or 13 and they resume their sport, they're going to be the same. They're going to be the same top 5% nothing will change. They'll think they're losing out because they're, are buddies. I'm talking about gifted athletes that you can't teach. You can't create an athlete. You can't make it. A parent is trying to make their child the best version of themselves, whatever that is, Through the lens of other people, but you can't, you can't make an athlete. There's genetics and there's all kinds of things that come into it. So that's my philosophy and if you adhere to it, which nobody will do unless there is literally I think you have to pay them. But if you think about it and that were to come true, then it validates your point. And it validates other points that you don't have to be in this needless kind of chaotic uh, 7 through 12 madness of playing all over the place. And, and driving yourself crazy to think that this is the way, you know, to get to college and to get to the big leagues.
0: Okay, John, last two questions. These are kind of fun. This is about your career. Uh, Who was the batter, John, who wasn't a Tony Gwynn caliber player, who wasn't Paul O'Neill or one of these celebrity-type hitters that you faced, but he was a major leaguer who gave you fits, and you could never figure out, and he just had your number?
1: Uh, Sean Green.
0: Sean Green, really?
1: (laughs) Wore me out. (laughs)
0: Uh, and how about the I've hitter? Heard, Go ahead. I've
1: heard from I've heard from Glavin. One of the nicest guys in the world, and he was when Glavin was over there with the Mets, and, and and you know Sean would never say a word, but Glavin um, he sent a message uh, uh, on behalf of Sean, which he wasn't wasn't Sean. He would never do this. Glavin sent a message saying, hey, Sean wants to make sure you got the limo so you get to the park today to
0: pitch. <laughs> uh, all right, you pitched 21 years. You had a career unlike anybody ever because you went from dominant closure to dominant starter. That never, and it will never happen again. So and in your 21 years, who was your toughest out? I'm not talking Sean Green. I'm talking Hall of Fame caliber hitter who you were like, yep, not happening tonight.
1: No, it's Tony Gwynn, without a doubt. There's no... There's no if, ands, or buts. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, there's a you got to look up uh, Pedro Martinez, me, Glavin, and Maddox. I think we faced them over 330 times, all right, and we struck them out a con- con- total of three times.
0: Three times?
1: Three. Maddox never got him. Pedro never got him. I got him once, and I think Glavin got him twice. It's no more than four. If you just if you just think about
0: that, It's <laughs> oh, incredible.
1: And you think about. How incredibly diff- different the game is today, and that he had seasons where he struck out 15 times. Guys have weeks, a week, four days sometimes right. that struck out 15 times. So it's amazing um, how good Tony Gwynn was, and it didn't matter what I did. And it really just didn't matter. I threw him a knuckleball, and he laughed. He He, <laughs> he laughed. And it was a sign of respect where he looked at me and he just said, he just said, you know, I could see it in his eyes, like, you went to a knuckleball.
0: Was it a strike?
1: (laughs) It was, and they didn't call it. That
0: was the other thing. Uh, John, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it. I hope you keep preaching the message about youth sports, and I look forward to your continued great work on Fox Sports, MLB, telecast, and MLB TV as well. Thank you so much. You got it. Uh, My pleasure. Uh, One more anecdote I want to share before I wrap this up. Uh, During that conversation with John Smoltz, I referenced Dr. James Andrews, who is probably the most renowned and respected sports orthopedic surgeon today. He's in his late 70s. And if you name the major surgery for a top athlete, he's likely the surgeon. Now, I had an opportunity to visit with Dr. Andrews, I think it was about five years ago, and he told me this crazy story about youth sports. I'm paraphrasing this, but Dr. Andrews tells me this guy calls him one day and he wasn't sure how he really got the guy, how this guy got his number, but it was okay. The man was polite. And he says his niece is this prodigy tennis player and that the family is looking for an agent and looking for help, looking for guidance. And he wonders if Dr. Andrews might know, know somebody and Dr. Andrews is unfailingly polite and decent and gives the guy some good advice about agents and said there are some really good ones out there and offers to point the guy in the direction of an agent or two if he wants. The guy says that's great because his niece is just going to be the next best thing, that she is a prodigy and she has it and she is a great tennis player who will be a great tennis player once she becomes a professional. Dr. Andrews asks, "Uh, how old is your niece? The man says, She's four.